Alrighty, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in for the 13th in this season, if you will, of our chapter chat as we are working through the book of Acts. We're in the book of Acts chapter 13 today. If you're in a position to have a Bible out and handy, uh, feel free to do that. If not, if you're just listening on the road or in the shower or wherever you may be, uh, I hope you'll uh, be encouraged and be, um, you know, maybe even taught something or learn something or maybe even hear something over the course of the next few minutes that uh, maybe even disagree with, and that's totally okay. We're more than glad to respond to any kind of feedback that you might have. I've got Jason with me. Jason, are you ready to talk about Acts 13 today? I'm ready to jump in, Josh. Well, for to, this is some behind-the-scenes info that not everybody knows. Jason and I, actually, we record these several weeks in advance, and um, so we've kind of had kind of a stockpile of of episodes in the can before people are actually hearing them. Uh, but we had a little gap of a couple of weeks here where we've not been able to get together due to babies being born and things of that nature that occupy our time. And so we've had a, a bit of a dry spell here, and I'll confess, um, I, I feel kind of almost at a loss. So we may be kind of slow in kind of picking up and getting going this week uh, from kind of having that gap uh, in between the last chapter and this chapter, but uh, this is a, 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 a thick chapter. Uh, it's a big one. Got 50-something verses in here. Um, and there's a lot happening um, as we are officially going to have uh, recorded for us what we often just refer to as the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Um, that's not to say that all of the other journeys and comings and goings of uh, these early Christians prior to this don't count, but if we're kind of keeping count of these big tours all across the known world at this point, uh, this is kind of the first really intentional one where there it seems like there's a planned uh, agenda and we're going by ship and all these other methods, and uh, it's just really kind of mapped out. And so I'm eager to kind of follow along on the map. Yeah, I, I think that we see a lot more from Paul's journeys because of the nature of, of how Luke wrote it. Yeah. Um, because I think he probably got a lot of personal information from Paul, um, you know, aside from the journeys he was actually on himself. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think we, we get a lot more detail here. I, I think that that just helps us to, to realize, man, the, this guy and a lot of these people, they were traveling around a lot. And they, they did a lot in, in you know the cause of Christ and spreading mm -hmm. the gospel in a, in a time that they didn't have cars or trains or planes, you know, any, anything like that. You couldn't just be like, well, I'll hop it, you know, we'll, we'll hop in the car and go a couple hundred miles. Let's just go to Pamphylia today. <laughs> yeah, I'm <not laughs> yeah. doing it. <laughs> no, like, it took some time. And, yeah. and you know, they, they, they took, put a lot of effort into this. Yeah. Um, well, we, we've noted in, in some of the, the recent chapters how, um, of course, the story of Cornelius with the, the floodgates of the gospel being opened up to, to that Gentile family and the fallout from that in, in chapter 11. And we've noticed some other uh, episodes of, of brothers going to uh, what seems like largely uh, Gentile areas. Uh, this first preaching journey, it does seem like there is a heavy emphasis on we're going to places where, where there's going to be Gentiles. Uh, we're going to places where uh, there's going to be Jews too, but um, we're kind of really make a, making a concerted effort to provide the gospel to all people. Uh, and it seems like the Antioch church 
which of course was one of those heavily Gentile uh, congregations, uh, they had an interest in that. And, um, and we were reintroduced to this Antioch church here at the beginning of, of chapter 13. So let's read a little bit, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Let's just stop right there. We get this little cluster mentioned of, of, of guys here. Um, I kind of, just personally, I've kind of always taken that these, uh, how many men are mentioned here, one, two, three, four, five guys here, I actually kind of take it that this might have been kind of the quote-unquote the teaching team. You know, it mentions there are prophets, and then it says, and teachers, and I kind of take this as these are the guys who are the teachers. Uh, that's not to say that, you know, these guys couldn't have also been prophets in the sense of, you know, having, you know, actual the spiritual gift of prophecy. It's interesting to me, though, that Saul is, we're later going to start knowing more as Paul, He's never referred to in that way as a prophet. Now, if you want to use prophet in the sense of just simply a messenger for God, well, yeah, I mean, in that sense, you and I are prophets, you right. know, yeah. uh, any of us who, who speak the messages of God. But um, probably in a more specific sense, uh, that, that may not necessarily be what's being talked about here. Um, but anyway, you've got, these, you've, you've got some guys there in this church at Antioch, which is still a you know, relatively newish congregation, uh, but we've got guys who are not only endowed by the Spirit in some ways, but we've got some guys who are ready to go and who are busy doing work. And you know, a couple of these guys, we're gonna we're gonna specifically start sending them out and sending them abroad. Yeah, and which is interesting because uh, it seems like this is if if this is their core group of teachers, you know, I want to take two out of my five and send them out, you yeah. know, that, that's kind of scary. Yeah. You know, they could know 40%. We could use those people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when there's a need, we need to try to, to meet it. Well, and but that, and at the same time, that, that's exactly what Ephesians chapter 4 says. God gave the church, you know, all these people that have all these different roles, uh, prophets, evangelists, teachers, etc., etc., and their job is to equip everyone for the for what for the work of ministry yeah. uh, and so that's now what I mean these people take that that kind of mission and that charge very seriously and we're going to be about the business of of all of that it's kind of like as parents you know we we raise our kids not to be completely dependent on, on us the, mm -hmm. our, their whole lives yeah you know we hope at, at some point they're able to get out and you know spread their wings and fly on their own yeah. uh, without us you know holding holding them up the yeah. whole time yeah that's, that's maturity. Uh, there's the mention here of, of Manaean, that, that he was a lifelong friend of, of Herod the Tetrarch. It's just kind of an interesting note that, uh, you know, it, Herod the Tetrarch, um, if, if I'm getting my Herods correct, um, is this not the same Herod that we just read about in chapter 12? I think it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the it's one hard to got, keep track of them all. The one who got eaten by the worms. Um, <laughs> But maybe this says something about uh, this guy's potential kind of influence. Mm -hmm. You know, if he was close friends with someone like Herod the Tetrarch, uh, someone who had, you know, a somewhat exalted position amongst the Jews, that may have meant that this Menaean brother was able to kind of reach an effect, not only him, but others within that 
sphere of, of, of influence. I, I don't know, my, that just strikes me as maybe being one of the reasons Luke would include that little bit of, of, of information. Um, so we got all these different guys who are um, teaching and, and doing the work of, of, of a prophet. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Um, notice first of all, verse 2, the involvement of the Spirit continues to be kind of forefront in the book of Acts. Yeah, I said early on, this is called the Acts of the Apostles. You could subtitle it the Acts of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is... Uh, very active uh, amongst uh, God's people at that time. He's still active today. It's just we don't have it spelled out maybe as, as you know directly as uh, as it is uh, in Luke's record here. You think G when Jesus was on the earth, he told his apostles that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, as they might be worried, what are we going to do when you're gone? He says, "Don't worry. You know, I I'm going to be there." With you in spirit, yeah, uh, you know, through the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit, yeah, um, and so I, I think that that's that promise that they had is not the same promise that we have, um, in the same sense. You know, there is a sense in which yes, Jesus is with us. You know, we have His Spirit inside of us. Uh, we're told that, yeah, um, but yes, I, I agree in a different way. Um, there's mention here actually twice about fasting once again, yeah. and. Um, we just ought to always take note of that and not just zip right by that and simply just say, well, you know, that was something they did then. Uh, it was a cultural thing. Um, or, you know, we don't have to do that. Okay, I, I, I'll, I'll grant I'm not aware of a command in the New Testament that says Christians must fast or that, you know, the church... Uh, as a whole, must fast on these occasions or for these reasons. However, you know, we talk an awful lot about apostolic example, approved mm. examples. Yeah. For, for something like this that we see so often, it's probably something that we ought to we ought to really think about the value of that. And I think in some ways maybe we, we do do the fasting thing sometimes, maybe without even really thinking about it. Uh, you know, we'll we'll just kind of divorce ourselves from certain things that are going on. We'll divorce ourselves or deprive ourselves of certain privileges, even if it's not food. And for these people, I think the fasting is talking about food right. um, and you know fulfilling those appetites. Uh, but for us, it may be fasting in other ways. We're going to deprive ourselves of, of, of other privileges so that we can be singularly focused on something that really deserves our attention uh, in a spiritual way. So, for example, if we're talking about something that pertains to the church, you know, I, I think about things like, um, you know, a church appointing elders, you know, going through that process. You know, that seems like a very appropriate time for some praying coupled with fasting that, you know, I'm going to set aside focused time. And that really is the idea here of, of the fasting. It's not so much just depriving myself of food because then I can say, oh, look, I went without food for hmm. X amount of, of time. Uh, that was a little bit of a problem, it seems like, with the Pharisees and some of the other religious leaders. And Jesus, of course, condemned that in Matthew chapter 6. People who fast for, for, for pretense and for show and they're wanting some kind of, of, of adulation for that. Um, the idea here biblically of fasting is the idea of, of 
I'm going to strip myself of some things so that I can focus on God and focus on uh, things that are really important to Him and that pertain to His kingdom. Um, there's, we ought to take some cues from, from the early church in that regard. I wholeheartedly agree with that. You know, you think about how often the Jews were commanded to fast mm -hmm. one day a year. Right. And that was it. That, that's yep. all that they had. But still, you see constantly over and over these people were fasting and praying. Um, and that, that should strike us as being like, you know, maybe it's not just a cultural thing because they had, granted, they had that one day a year, but what about all these other times that they're doing it? Yeah. You know, why were they doing it then? Yeah. Um, you know, even Jesus, when he, when he was confronted uh, with, you know, some of the Pharisees, they were like, you know, John's disciples were fasting and you're here eating and drinking. What are you, what are you doing? Uh, and he said, no, there's going to be a time for that. Um, but right now, I, the bridegroom is with them. Right. And so, you know, in the same way, um, here, this is the time for, for fasting. Yeah, and, and, that's, and what Jesus said, there's a great principle, you know, when we're going to consider fasting, is like, is it fitting? Is it appropriate for the situation? Yeah. You know, if, um, if, if, if we've just baptized somebody... I'm probably not going to go on a fast, you know, immediately after <laughs> yeah. that. It just kind yeah. of it, it just seems incongruent. Um, but like I said, if, if the congregation is facing, you know, some important decisions or a trial of some sort, if I personally am enduring uh, hardship, uh, sometimes, like I said, fasting just kind of comes naturally a little bit. I mean, I know there's been times where, like, you know, lost a family member. And, I mean, you, just, you don't even feel like eating. True. You know, don't even, yeah. don't even want to think about it. Um, and so we just kind of just f fast automatically. <laughs> um, and that's not a bad thing. You know, yes, yeah. the, the body needs food in order to survive. I get that. Um, but it, it can help us to get more focused and more centered on the things that, that really merit our, our attention for a time. The average human being is able to go 21 to 28 days without food. <laughs> Uh, we're not going to die. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so, you know, when we think about this, I think our culture, we are too married to our food. Yeah. Uh, and the idea that we have, no, we have to have at least three meals a day and seven snacks throughout the day. And, <laughs> you know, constantly taking in food and not just any food, but the food that I like. As I sip my Mountain Dew. <laughs> That's right. I mean, we just, we don't know what it's like to be deprived of food. And it's, it's kind of funny because we have so much of an abundance of this that, you know, the idea of even, even missing one meal uh, for oh. prayer is like, no, you can't do that. Yeah. You know, how would we respond if someone that, that we worship with came and asked us, hey, listen, I, I'm going through this, this tough time. We're making this decision. Would, would, would you all as a family uh, fast and pray with us, you know, on Tuesday or whatever? Uh, you know, what, what would our response be? How yeah. would we handle that? Uh, I was like, no, I'm not doing that. You know? Weird. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, passages uh, come to mind like, uh, our God is our belly, you know, yeah. we have that appetite or, you know, um, just being willing to give up our rights mm -hmm. for the sake of our brethren. Yep. And, you know, and in, that's a different context there. But, but I think that the idea still remains, though, you know, what are we willing to give up for others, for yep. one, but also for our service to the Lord. And again, not trying to, to say it's mandated and we, we have to do this no. in, in this certain time, but 
we need to pay more attention to that. We do. It is, we want to do Bible things in Bible ways. Well, this is very biblical. Yep. Um, so I, I think we need to consider that more. Yeah, as opposed to lots of the other, you know, just traditions and things that we've come up with through the years that are not necessarily, I'm not saying those are bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm struggling to just name something to, to compare this to, but... You know, here's something that's that's actually it's in the Bible and it's in there yeah. a lot too. Yeah. Um, and as people who, you know, we want to do Bible things in Bible ways and we want to follow the the the, the pattern. Hey man, I'll make a strong case. There is a pattern of fasting in the New Testament uh, and amongst uh, New Testament Christians. And so, uh, everybody take all that for for what it's worth and uh, you know think about that. Um, the main thing here in the midst of all this is that the Spirit says to set apart for me Barnabas and, and Saul. Uh, and, and we've already seen lots of great things about the character of both of these guys. Barnabas is the noted encourager. Saul is the guy who has the you know, incredible uh, reversal from coming out of, you know, not just coming out of sin, but coming out of you know, terrorism uh, <laughs> yeah. to become... Uh, uh, one of the foremost preachers of the gospel. Uh, this is a great tandem. You think I think about Barnabas and Saul whenever I think about the great you know, teams in the Bible. And there's lots of them. And Saul, Paul later is going to have, you know, lots of these great little duo combinations. You know, Paul and right. Silas, yeah. Paul and Timothy, uh, and we'll we'll notice some of those. But I don't know. It seems like number one on that list for me in my mind is always Paul and Barnabas. Yeah, I mean, we get so much of that in the first few chapters of Acts, and I think that that's it, it's amazing to see that and, and to think, you know, we all have different abilities and talents and skills, mm-hmm. and instead of being like, well, I'll use mine over here, you use yours over there, you know, it's let's let's team up, let's work together, yeah. you know, let's we together everyone achieves more, you know, yeah. team, um, and so that they're doing some some good work here. Uh, because of the the comp, how they complement each yes. other, the complementary nature yes. of their roles, and it seems like that's and also probably the the fact that they weren't just two identical characters personality wise. That unfortunately is also going to be the source, I think, of probably the contention that arises later on, uh, because they both kind of have, you know, maybe one's more left brain and the other's more right brained, or yeah. you know, whatever the the differences are. Uh, one thing I do want to notice, and and I think this is worth pointing out, you know, I'm saying Paul and Barnabas. Hmm. Actually, yeah. the, the up until we're going to see it here in the middle of the chapter, yeah. up until we get to that point, it's Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. We're going to see a, it, it's going to, there's, there's going to be a huge hinging turning point where that's going to get, get reversed and we're going to kind of see Saul, Paul move to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does seem that maybe, maybe, and this may be kind of a subtle thing that Luke is doing here because you remember it was Barnabas who kind of came and vouched for Saul in Jerusalem. And so maybe Barnabas was kind of more of the, the, the forefront guy of that tandem in the beginning. But over the course of time, as Paul grew and as he matured, he kind of stepped into kind of a more you know lead role or certainly more forefront role, kind of the way Peter is. You know, he's not officially the leader but he is kind of more outspoken and kind of steps to the forefront more often than not. Yeah, not only do we have different roles, but there are different times where yes. our roles uh, need to be in the front more. Yep. You know, and uh, we don't do things to be seen, but sometimes we do things that are seen. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we, we always need to give God the glory, uh, yeah. you know, absolutely. And, and we see that constantly with both of these guys, but still yet, um, you know, you, you, we just got to realize that our role plays a purpose. Um, and that, that's the way God created the body, Yeah, know, created the church to work. Um, well, so there the church prays for them, um, lays their hands on them, sends them off, and now begins the first preaching missionary journey of, of these men. So verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Now, this is the same John that we, uh, at the end of chapter 12, uh, is John Mark, um, who right. probably we just better know uh, as Mark, the author of, of, of that famous gospel. Um, from what we have commonly kind of said, um, John Mark is probably a young man. Um, there, there's yeah. probably some, some good evidence for that. Uh, and I'm not saying that as a, as a knock or, 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 or make any kind of a comment about that one way or the other, uh, just noting that he probably is a younger guy. When it says that John assisted them, I know I have lots of questions of, okay, well, what, what did that job entail? Yeah. You know, I mean, did he, did he carry the luggage? <laughs> did he, <laughs> you know, was he the, he the one who, you know, fetched the scroll for them when they needed it? Right. Um, not entirely sure about all of that. It may have really just, you know, I, it could have just been a role where he really was just kind of there to observe, maybe more than actually doing any actual, you know, preaching and teaching and things of that nature. He's more just a, you know, a, a, a learner, an apprentice of some sort. Uh, I could be totally wrong about that, but uh, we don't really get any details about this assisting that he does. No, we, we don't. And the, the thing is, you know, we all have different roles, like we said before, um, and there's a time to be a helper, assistant, and there, there's a time to take take lead. And I, I think that, you know, we do see a growth and progression in him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you just, there is an entire gospel of the Bible written by him. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, apparently he, he was pretty involved. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, but, you know, there's a time, there, we're all young sometimes, you know, and there's, there's some learning and there's some growth. Um, so I think sometimes we, we can't be upset if we don't automatically start out in the role that we think we need to be in. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a time for growth and there's a time to learn and we can't short circuit that process. Um, and it's, it takes experience. Yeah. And you know we'll 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 notice in a little while when we get to it that um, it may be that his his youth um, is is kind of part of the 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 sticking point between yeah. Paul and Barnabas and uh, may be the reason that he ends up uh, not sticking with this uh, particular journey the entire way through. Um, and, and and all of that again just just speaks to the process of maturation and you know it is great to to note you know when you read later in the epistles um, that whatever shortcomings he may have had at this point in his youth 
he 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 grew past those things. You know, yeah. Paul talks about how he's useful for me. He's mentioned in Peter's uh, epistle. Apparently, he was useful to Peter as well. Uh, like you said, <laughs> he wrote one of the four gospels that <laughs> says, you know, God God saw that he was useful. Yeah. Um, but he is there with them. Uh, he's kind of the 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 third official uh, person on this trip. Um, I don't discount the possibility that there's others or there's others that they kind of pick up along the way and kind of become part of this uh, troop. Uh, I did want to say verse 4 when it says that uh, Cyprus was one of the first stops. Um, That's where Barnabas is from. So probably there was some intentionality behind that that, hey, let's, let's go back to my hometown. Um, and let's do a little bit of work work there. Um, let's head to, to, to some of these regions where, um, you know, Paul, uh, of course, has uh, dual citizenship. Um, and so he's able to not only be helpful towards people who are through and through Jews, but he's also able to accommodate and reach people who are outside of, of, of the Jewish family. Um, and so let's hit some of those spots as well. Um, we notice here very early on, verse 5, that they're going to synagogues where Jews are. And that very much becomes the custom for, for Paul later on. Yeah. Come to a new town, where am I going first? Uh, is there a synagogue? Because let's go there. Because what are you going to find in the synagogue? Well, you're going to find religiously minded people, people who have an interest in the Word of God, people who... Uh, you know, know who God is, and uh, hey, we've got some commonality already. Let's just start working from there. Let's see where we'll see where that takes us. And that's just a good rule of thumb for evangelism, just in general. You know, I want to go, and I want to uh, keep my eyes open for opportunities where there's already people who demonstrate and show an interest in spiritual things. That's not to say that we don't ever, you know, reach out to people who you know, look like they don't have any interest at all. You know, the, the the biker dude in leather with tattoos up and down his arms and piercings in his face, and we might think, oh, okay, that guy don't care about God. No, we're, we're, we're going to make efforts with those people too. But if I'm, you know, if I'm sitting, you know, on the opposite side of a bus and the person over here on the left-hand side is the biker dude, you know, and yeah. the person over here on the right-hand side's got their Bible out and reading it, I'm probably going to be inclined to strike up a conversation with the Bible reading person first. Yeah. Uh, right. Because they're already showing spiritual interest, uh, and I know that we've got something that we can work with. Um, and that's th- that's the common sense approach that Paul takes. It is, you know, it, and you see, you know, both sides in Acts. You know, how do you approach somebody who is literally reading a scroll? of, you know, one of the books of the Bible, yeah. uh, as opposed to how do you talk to some, a group of people who are, you know, worshiping some kind of Greek goddess. Yeah. Um, much different conversation. Exactly. Uh, much different starting point. And, you know, for us, you think about this, uh, what is our source of authority? I mean, it's the Bible. That, that's, that's where we find our, you know, what we need to do. That's where we find truth. Um, what if you're talking to somebody who doesn't accept that as truth, though, um, doesn't see that as the Word of God? Well, you can't just start and be like, well, if you look here in Acts 13, um, because you have to build that conversation yeah, up first. Right. Um, and so it's just a different approach. Um, maybe a little more involved and maybe, you know, takes a little longer. And so nothing wrong with starting where it's easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and not saying because it's easier that it's better or that it's going to work out every time. 
because as we're going to find out, it does not work out every time. Right. Um, just because it's easier to initiate doesn't mean that you know it's it's a done deal. That's right. That's right. Just just because Paul always you know started out in those synagogues did not mean oh well he converted lots of folks every time he went in there. No, sometimes he got ran out of the synagogue. <laughs> um, but but that's always a, a good starting point. That it, it, that would kind of just. Again, it's it's even if I don't you know engage in meaningful Bible studies with all the people in the synagogue. If nothing else, I'm gonna make get some contacts to start with. This person knows that person. Uh, people are gonna see me going in and out of that place. Who knows what that might uh, create? And so uh, th- that's the pattern that's beginning right here in verse number five, uh, verse six. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos. They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, of course, the, the expression there, Bar-Jesus, Bar means son of. Now, whether this guy just adopted this name, you know, like you know, some of the other magicians that, you know, Jonathan the Magnificent. Hmm. Okay, and yeah. you, 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 I'm guessing he probably wasn't born Jonathan the Magnificent. Uh, at some Chances point, he, are probably not. Yeah, he took that as a stage name. So maybe he kind of this is his stage name. Maybe it is a name that that he was given. Maybe he was, you know, Jesus in the uh, in, in the Hebrew just means Joshua. Right. Uh, so it's just a pretty ma- common name. Yes. So, um, but I, I will say. Because I, I think Paul's going to make a play on this uh, here when we get to the end of this little section. Um, I, 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 I think it's, it's, we're kind of supposed to see this as the son of Jesus. Uh, and we're going to see just, again, how there's incongruency in this guy you know, wearing this name, I'm the son of Jesus, yeah. when in fact the things that he's doing and practicing is the very opposite of that. Um, you know, that interesting term that he uses here, the false prophet, mm-hmm. um, I think sometimes we're a little too quick to use terms like that, false prophet or yes. false teacher yes. in, a, in a lot of ways. Um, this guy was a magician. If, if you don't know what those people do, they make their living with trickery. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, they know that what they're doing isn't real, that, you know, it's, it's something that they are finding ways to intentionally hide the truth uh, in order to, you know, <laughs> just be amazing or surprise people or whatever. Uh, you know, with the, when it says it's a false, he is a false prophet, now that, that just takes it to a whole new level of he's, uh, he obviously knows that what he is saying and doing is not the truth, um, which is much different from someone who doesn't understand or is misled mm-hmm. about the nature of what they're doing. Yeah. Because um, I think, and I, I mean, this is just me speculating about most, I think most people are generally, um, you know, pretty, you know, fair-minded and, you know, at least attempting to do the right thing in the right way. Yeah. Um, maybe just misled. And that that creates a whole different way of approach. How do you approach somebody who is teaching something in error who is misled versus teaching someone who is intentionally misleading other people. Yeah, for profit or for, you know, gain of some sort. You know, I, the epistles of Peter are very helpful in uh, being careful but but giving kind of some clear parameters on yeah. who and what we, you know, give that label false teacher, false prophet to. We can feel comfortable about calling this guy a false prophet because... 
<laughs> the inspired writer says so. <laughs> he says it, and, and and we've got good reason to believe it too, because again, yeah. he's he, he's he's distorting uh, the truth, and he's clearly doing that for his own gain. He this would be like you know, kind of uh, back in chapter eight with Simon the sorcerer. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that there really is a whole lot of difference between the magician and the sorcerer. Uh, it is two different terms, but yeah. um, it seems like both of these guys you know, are are doing this with dollar signs in mind, the things that they're saying, the things that they're uh, practicing. Um, verse 7 says that he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, notice this, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, I told you that a week ago or so, I did read this chapter and kind of had some thoughts yeah. uh, then, and most of them have been forgotten. But the one that I do remember, because I ended up making a Facebook post about it, was what said in, in this verse, that this man, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, he sought out men who could teach him and tell him about the Word of God. And I love that, because the common refrain in our world today is that people who are interested in the Bible and Christianity are just stupid? Yeah, you know, you're naive. You're just, you know, looking for something to to hold on to and kind of make that your own because you just can't use your brain. Um, but in Bible times, that's not the way that people approach the Bible. In Bible right. times, we got a passage right here that says a man of intelligence wanted to hear the Word of God. And he's not even the only example of that, but I think Luke is kind of going out of his way to, to make this point. Uh, people who did use their brain saw that, you know what, the Bible is not a book for dummies. Uh, that the Word of God, the things that these men were teaching and saying, it wasn't, you know, for just a bunch of illiterate, you know, hillbillies who just, you know, don't know nothing. No, it, it, it has substance to it. Uh, and there's value in it and uh, meaning behind it. And I want to know more about that. And I see how that, uh, you know, affects a person's life in a positive sort of way. And so I want to know more about that. Um, I just think that's just a, a, a it's, it's, again, it's kind of a, a subtle note that Luke is making here, but, but it's one that, you know, it, it makes me feel better as a Christian, <laughs> you know, and it's the kind of thing that I just want to to, to, to kind of throw back in the face of uh, kind of the, I don't know, the, the intellectual elites of our day and the yeah. snobbery that goes along with that. Um, no, you don't have to have an IQ of 35 in order to, you know, to, to be someone who has an interest in the Bible. It's actually a very logical thing. And we've talked about this before, how, you know, Real truth never fears scrutiny. Yeah. Um, you know, we can look at, at some of these things, we can investigate, and I, I think come to pretty solid conclusions because it's logical and, you know, there's an approach here. Uh, interesting. It, it is Luke who notices this. Mm -hmm. Luke himself being a doctor. Yep. Um, you know, one of the, the most well-learned professions. Uh, even in that time, I, I think sometimes we look and be like, oh, doctors didn't know nothing back then. Well, they had they had to learn. Yeah. Um, and so they they still were respected and and men of intelligence. And so um, I, I think that he he would definitely take note of that because you know that's where he was. Yeah. Um, and Luke, being the one who investigated things thoroughly, he provided eyewitness testimony. Mm -hmm. um, you know, 
why would you do that if you were trying to hide the truth or you know trying to present something? Uh, no, he's he's just like here's the facts. Yeah, here's what happened. Yeah, you and you and then you make a determination about uh, the, the facts that are being presented to you. Um, so so we got this man of intelligence who. Uh, asked for Barnabas and Saul to come and to do some teaching. However, verse 8, this Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So not only is, is Elymas, you know, um, seemingly, you know, kind of a huckster, but on top of that, um, he's not just kind of a, a, a passive unbeliever. No, he's an antagonist. Uh, he is the kind of person that, and we do see a lot of these kinds of people today as well, who are just kind of militant uh, in tearing down uh, Christianity and belief in, in the Word of God. And that's the character of, of this guy here, seeking to throw a wrench in uh, what Saul and Barnabas are, are attempting to do to teach this man and help him come to faith in Christ. I might be reading too much into this, but uh, I just find it interesting that, that the magician was with this guy, the proconsul, who was apparently, you know, an important political figure mm -hmm. uh, in the area. I wonder if it was because he had gained his trust through his, you know, Possibly. position, and he realized, man, if if this guy understands what the real truth is, then I'm out. Exactly. Yeah. And so maybe he was really concerned about his own livelihood, and so he had a, a vested interest in that this man does not believe. Yeah. Uh, and I think sometimes we are too swayed by dollar signs. Yeah. And uh, and position, you know, uh, money and power. That's that's the the two things that I think are the downfall of many people. And so I maybe that's that's why he was opposing them so much. Well, th this is kind of the point where I, I'm going to suggest is where the pivot takes place, yeah. where where now Saul uh, is going to going to come to the forefront. Mm -hmm. uh, and I love everything about what he says here. Uh, this is this is a scene <laughs> I'd like to see played out in a movie someday. Yeah. Uh, verse nine. But Saul, who was also called Paul, so now we're also kind of getting that shift as well, yeah. filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, at Elymas, and he said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Verse 12, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Uh, so the first thing out of Paul's mouth is that expression that I do think is a play on the, you know, the, the bar Jesus thing, meaning son of Jesus. Yeah. Paul says, no, 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 no. You are a son of the devil. You, you ain't no son of Jesus. you the son of the devil. That's a good point. Acting essentially on his behalf, whether you realize it or not, that's exactly what you're doing. Uh, you are, you know, standing in the way of God's work. And we've noted in in the previous chapters, you know, there were warnings against. Hey, we, we, we you know, you think about. Uh, well, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, Paul's teacher who spoke up and said, Gamaliel. Gamaliel, yeah. yeah. Let, let's not be found opposing God. There was other instances of. Of, of, of that warning happening or, or people being accused of doing that. And this is exactly what happens when you stand in the way and oppose God's Word and the Gospel going forward. The Gospel is not going to be stopped, ever. 
d- despite what people do. Yeah, you can cut off James's head. Uh, yeah. You can stand here and you know whisper into the ear of the proconsul, and you can do all kinds of stuff. But one way or another, the gospel's going to go forward. And sometimes what that means is that means you're going to get mowed down in the process. And, um, and that's what the Lord does here through the hand of, of Paul. Uh, strikes the guy blind, obviously puts a damper on any of his future endeavors. Yeah. Uh, probably put a big damper on you know, his livelihood as well, uh, being able to continue yeah. doing his magicianry and trickery. Um, but I, 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 I like the fact that verse 12 says that the proconsul believed, um, yes, because he saw what he occurred, but what's also said in the remainder of that verse, yeah. he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It wasn't just that he saw a flashy miracle and, oh, I believe in God now. No, it was the miracle coupled with the teaching of God's Word. That's what swayed this man and helped him to become uh, a believer from whatever he was prior to this uh, to becoming a, a believer in Christ. I know I've made a lot of John references in these studies, but I think that there's a lot that we see from, from how Jesus interacts Chapter 9, with the blind man. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that guy was blind. He came to the light, um, you know, because Jesus healed him. Yeah. When, and when you come to Jesus, I mean, you have that. You either continue in darkness or you come to the light. Now, some people don't realize they're in darkness. So what does coming to Jesus do for them? Well, it shows them where they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this guy, he thought that he was in the light or he was pretending that he was the light bringer. But... He wasn't. And so this blindness was just sort of an extension, I, I think, of just showing how in the dark he was spiritually. Yeah. Um, I think it's also interesting, Paul's the one who does this, because what really brought him to Jesus when he was blinded, uh, you know, his, his blindness led to him seeing. This guy's blindness did not. Uh, you know, right. And, and that's just the, the nature of, of people. And some people, uh, you know, can respond to situations very, the same situations very differently. Um, but I do think that that is amazing, uh, what you said about the end of verse 12, about how it was the teaching of the Lord yeah. that brought the proconsul. You know, no matter how many signs and no matter how much evidence there is uh, that we see of all these amazing things, really when it comes down to it, the power is in the Word. The power yeah. is the gospel. Um, it's, it's not seeing signs. And so I, I think that that's, we, we get too focused on, man, if I could just see a miracle, if I could just see this and I could know... No, we we can know because what you were saying earlier, logic. It's it follows using because, the minds. Yeah, yeah. There it is. You know, seeing a miracle does not teach anyone about who Jesus is. Right. You know, just seeing a miracle does not uh, teach you about the love of God or the grace of God or about. Uh, it doesn't teach you about sin. Uh, it doesn't teach you the first thing about how to respond to the 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 call of the gospel. It doesn't even. T- t- you know, seeing a miracle doesn't even tell you what the gospel is. <laughs> yeah. uh, th- those things are accomplished through through teaching, through the Word of God, and that's where over and over again the emphasis always has to come back to. And that's uh, th- that's always my response to, to today to people who, you know, uh, we've talked about this a, a few times, just about you know the, the belief that modern day miracles can still be uh, performed by the hands of of, of, of human beings. Um, I just. There's just some questions that when I pose them just are never greeted with an actual um, answer of any kind. And usually one of my questions is, is well, well, why do we need them? Mm. You know, if, if we have the Word of God that is, is said to be able to 
to produce faith, Romans 10, verse 17. Um, the, the Word of God that's able to, yes, it's able to teach us about miracles that took place. That helps to bolster our faith even more. Yeah. Um, but, but why do we need them? And uh, I've never been given a, a solid answer uh, on that. Uh, we've got the Word, and um, Luke over and over again is, is, is making sure, yeah, miracles were taking place, but it's the Word of God that was um, causing people to become Christians. Um, the miracles only helped to just reinforce that the, that the men who spoke these words really were messengers from God, and people could know uh, and have confidence in, in listening to these men. Gives them a fair hearing. Yes. Um, and not necessarily, uh, not everybody who who saw the miracle and then heard believed. Right. Uh, you know, it, it was just a way to say, okay, you need to listen, pay attention to this. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe there was a lot of people saying a lot of different things. How do I know which one's tr true or legit or which one should I, I focus on? Still yet, we're going to see later on in Acts when a group of people see the miracles, but still they search the scriptures daily yeah. to make sure that those things were so. Um, to apostles, you know, and it's like, you know, how much more should we? Right. Uh, you know, our faith needs to be based on, on the word, not some kind of miraculous signs or anything else or the faith of others or whatever. Right. Um, you know, it does really good to see how much the Lord has done in someone else's life. Mm -hmm. But that's not what our faith is based on. Right. Yeah, it's deeper. Um, let me say one more thing about verse 9. I said that was kind of a, a, you know, a, a pivot point where you know, Saul, Paul is kind of moving to the forefront. Uh, this is also kind of where we decisively have the, the, the shifting uh, of Luke kind of shifting to, to now we're going to call him Paul exclusively from this point forward. Right. Um, it's commonly said, and I think in, in times past I've even said this, that, that God changed Saul's name to Paul. Hmm. And, and, and we, we tend to kind of think that that happened when he became a Christian, that that's, that that's when he stopped being Saul and that's how he became Paul. And I know why we say that, and that's because there's examples in the Old Testament where God changed somebody's name. You know, and he says specifically, you know, no longer will you be called uh, Jacob, but you'll be Israel. Yeah. Uh, or he changed Abraham's name to Abram, or Abram, oh. <laughs> Abram to Abraham. Excuse me. Um, and and so we see that in the Bible, but that's not actually said about uh, Saul or Paul. Uh, really, just what we have here is we have what was common in New Testament times, and that is he had two names. Yeah. And it's handy that they kind of that they rhyme, <laughs> and there's only a one one letter difference. Yeah. Um, but God did not change His name to Paul w when He was converted because, um, like, I don't know, I don't know how many times I haven't counted them, nine, ten, a dozen times. We've still seen Him referred to as Saul even yeah. after His conversion. And this has been years. Yes. <laughs> not just a few days. Yes. Um, the difference is, is that Saul is his Hebrew name yeah. and Paul is his Greek name. And probably the reason that kind of from this point forward, um, he, he's going to be identified as Paul more often than not, and that is because Paul's going to be going to a lot of Greek-speaking places. Yeah. So it makes sense that he's going to be identified by a name that would be, uh, you know, ingratiate himself to those people and get himself uh, kind of plugged into the uh, to, to the culture that was around him. Um, the truth is, you know, think about the idea of God changing that. The truth is, if anybody changed his name, 
it's Luke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's really what happens here yeah. because in verse 13 uh, is when he is Paul f- f- from this point on. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to accuse somebody of changing his name, it's, it's, it's Luke who kind of does it in an unofficial way. Uh, and so I'm, I'm glad to now stop calling him Saul slash Paul. <laughs> Uh, it's hard to yeah. break from that because you know the the, the person that we know, uh, and and th- this is the other thing. I think we just associate in our minds Saul is the evil persecutor, Paul is the wonderful <laughs> preacher and Christian. Yeah. Um, but it, it, even that's kind of inaccurate because even Saul was the preacher and the Christian. Yeah, and and that's that's the th- I think we we can see the difference in. Well, people just had different nicknames. I mean, Elemis, Bar Jesus, yeah, he like three names, whatever. Yes, uh, you know, a lot of people did. You know, you have you think of the apostle we know as Thomas. Mm-hmm. Didymus was his gr- Greek name, which yeah. Thomas, by the way, is just a nickname too. His real name was Judas. Right. Uh, I mean, so many people. It's not like we have. Here's my first, middle, and last name. <laughs> right. Uh, and we can keep track of people pretty well like that. Um, but you know, these people, how many Saul's do you know? Right. I mean, that was kind of a common Jewish name. Um, you know, something that would not be uncommon. Yeah. Um, how many Joshua's or, or Jesus's were there? Probably a lot. Yeah. Um, so you had different names if he was also called this and, and this. Um, but, but too, you know, if you're going to a different region and your name has a translation in another language and you introduce yourself. You want to connect to those people, yeah. Um, and so you'll probably use, you know, my dad's name is James. If he went to a Spanish-speaking country, he would, I, I, and I don't know, I haven't asked him about this, but you know, that's Diego, you know, in, in Spanish, and so that, that's how you would do that. And so, I don't know, it, it just makes you more relatable to the people if you're using a name that they would be familiar with. Yes, I remember preaching in a meeting up in Ohio uh, a couple years ago, and there was a brother in the congregation who had. Uh, he had migrated from Africa. And when I met him on the first Sunday morning, I said, hey, brother, what's your name? And he he kind of chuckled, and he told me his full name. Uh, and it yeah. was like, you know, 12 syllables. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, in my mind, as I pictured the name, 34 letters long. Uh, and But then he just said, you call me Ike. <laughs> okay. Good. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yes. And, and so that was his effort to, like, I, I, I want to make it easier for my brethren here to... Uh, communicate with me, and also just when I meet other people, you know, I want to kind of be able to, to fit in, and, and that's that's one of those ways in which we can, you know, adapt and fit into our culture without compromising something uh, morally, um, and and that's appropriate, and uh, it makes again, it just makes it easier to to, to have conversation, makes it easier to uh, develop rapport, and um, I, I think that's probably what was in mind with with Paul probably going. Uh, to, to the more usage of, of the name Paul from this point forward. Yeah, well, it's something I guess we should say is when we see the name Saul and we see the name Paul, those are the English versions of, of these names. Uh, yeah. I don't know how similar Saul sounded to Paul from Hebrew to Greek. I'm imagining it wasn't as similar probably to not. Saul and Paul. Probably <laughs> you know, not. Probably not rhyming. Um, and so I, I don't know. I don't know how that would have sounded, but I'm sure, you know, speaking the, the Hebrew, Aramaic, and, and speaking Greek, those sound different. Yes. Um, and so uh, I, I think that sometimes we're like, well, why would you change your name? Because it's just, I mean, it's like the same thing. It, it would be a lot different. It probably would. I've made the mistake before of, of when I have, have heard of um, brethren in other countries singing American hymns, all the same words, but then they sing it in their own language. 
uh, I used to think, well, their words that correspond to our English words, they must rhyme. Oh, you know, because yeah. in a song, usually there's the, there's the rhyming at the end of it, but that's not the case. They that's, don't. No, right, right. Yeah, languages are different, <laughs> and and that would be the case for these for these names. That's all kind of a sidebar. Um, One more sidebar, just just because we're we're let's here. Let's just do it. Let's just keep sidebarring. Same same thing with some of the psalms when we read it. It's like, how's that poetry? It doesn't rhyme. Yeah. Well, not all poetry has to rhyme for one, but two. It could have. It could. Yeah. yeah. There, there's a lot that did. Uh, in. Hebrew, not English. Well, okay. So, all right. So that's this episode here. Some some initial resistance from from Elamus, but then also we, we see kind of also the, the positive side of that. We see this man who's in a uh, a position of some authority, the Sergius Paulus, who uh, is uh, seems to become a believer. And that 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 is, is going to happen a lot. You know, we'll see places where they go where there's success. Yeah, but it's also kind of mixed with some, you know, resistance and some pushback. Um, verse 13, here, here comes the beginning of their work in Antioch of Pisidia. Verse 13, Now Paul and his companions set, set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So this is the, the issue that is going to become a sticking point later on. Uh, at least for Paul, when it comes to the idea of taking John Mark with them on another preaching journey. Yeah. Um, and that, of course, is going to lead to the division of, of Paul and Barnabas for, for at least a, a, a time. Uh, again, we, we don't know. The Scripture doesn't give us the details on this. You know, there's been lots of conjecture. Uh, if, if he was a young guy, maybe he just realized, yeah, ah, this is too much for me, got homesick. Um, some have suggested that you know he might have had a girlfriend back home and was you know missing her and and again if he's a young guy I get that I can understand that yeah. uh, there's nothing in the text that indicates that his leaving and departure from them was sinful in any kind of way uh, right. even when Paul and Barnabas are disputing about it later on. There's nothing that Paul says that would incriminate John Mark that you know he did something you know, wrong, right. um, it just it just, just kind of rubbed Paul the wrong way. I mean, it it comes after he said that they put out to sea. Maybe he didn't like boats. Could have been. Maybe he, he just had a, had a real problem with that before, and, uh, you know, he was like, I, I could push through, and it's like, oh, I, don't, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. Um, and as someone who, I've, I've flown on an airplane uh, twice, like, like a full-size airplane, and then I've flown on, um, like a small little single passenger plane a couple of times um, and neither of those in either of those instances did that agree with me <laughs> and so um, when sometimes I get asked the question so my dad goes and preaches overseas a lot and he's gotten very accustomed to those long plane trips flying to the Philippines 13 hours and all that uh, the couple times I flew on the plane was I mean the first one was like 90 minutes uh, and then the, the little single-engine plane rides were much shorter than that, um, and that was that was more than enough for me. Uh, and so when people ask me about, oh, when, when are you going to do what your dad does and go go overseas and and you know go to these places, and I'm just like, I I just don't know that that's going to happen for me anytime soon yeah. because that is a consideration. Yeah. And so if if that was a consideration for John Mark, that I mean the the traveling by sea. Um, and it maybe was affecting him, his, you know, getting nauseous or whatever. Hey, I, 
he's not going to get any grievances from <laughs> me about that. I understand about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, every we all have our abilities and what we can do, and I'm going to affect, <laughs> you know, affect the world and the corner of it that I'm at, and I'm God bless people who who can board ships and planes and go to far off places and, and, and do that. And I want to encourage them in that work. But, uh, but it could have been anything. We, don't, we, we just don't know. I'll be interested to find out in heaven what the, what, what the whole backstory was on, on, on John Mark's leaving and, and what was the you know, contention all about. Uh, verse 14, though, they, they went on. Here's, here's the thing is, Paul and Barbara's going to continue on. we still got work to do. They went on from Perga and they came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue, and they sat down. And after the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, and we'll look at this in just a moment. Uh, my understanding is this actually was a pretty common practice, and may actually still be even to this day amongst uh, modern Jews, of when a like a, a visiting brother comes to town uh, and is is there in the assembly, that, that they would do this very thing. Hey, do you have anything that you would like to say? Is there some word that you know you've come to bring us, and I want to give you the opportunity to speak? And that even happens in in churches today. I remember growing up, um, if if we had you know a, a preacher and his family visiting with us on a Sunday, maybe they were just on vacation. It was not uncommon for the elders to go and ask, hey, do you have a sermon with you? If you do, would you like to preach today? <laughs> yeah. You know, our, our local guy would be more than glad to, to sit down and we'd, you know, we'd, it'd be a treat for us to, to have you preach for us. And sometimes those invitations would be accepted on the fly and other times they would not. I've been on vacation before and go somewhere and folks you know, that know me and know that I preach, that I've been asked, hey, would you want to preach today? And I always have an easy out for it, and that is I don't pack sermons with me. And yeah. so it's easy for me to then decline and say, no, I'm content to just be a, a participant in the worship today. Yeah. Uh, but that seems to be that was, that was the, the, the etiquette then. And Paul is never going to say no to those opportunities. <laughs> Knowing his personality, uh, he's going to seize the opportunity. Probably, he may have even been sitting there the whole time thinking, when are they going to come and ask us to speak? <laughs> we got some things they need to hear. Yeah. Uh, kind of antsy. Um, and he's going to. Thoughts before we actually look at the content of this. It's a big sermon. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that there's, we shouldn't think that that's too weird. I mean, that, that's just, it was something that was more common, it seems like. And still, like to, like you were saying, I, I've been in place, I, I was invited to um, some kind of service that, uh, there was a, somebody who started this small religious group next to me, and I had no idea what it was what it was about and so it invited me over and I was like yeah sure and so I went it was uh it was a very charismatic type service mm -hmm. uh and towards the end they were like you got something to say I was like Psh, yeah let's go <laughs> and so, so I mean it was the perfect time you yeah. know and so uh it wasn't wasn't weird yeah. for them for that to to happen and um, well and on and, and this may be kind of similar to the experience that you're describing that uh, maybe that environment you were hearing some things or some things were being done that maybe was not the norm of the of of, of what you practiced and believed right. growing up, yeah. but we're going to give you the opportunity, and that's that's really kind of what Paul and Barnabas. Right, so we're here amongst you know probably some pretty pretty devout Jews, yeah. you know, and we're straight up Judaism folks, um, and now Paul's going to get up and say some things that are going to be 
a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, he's going to build upon what they already know. He's going to build upon the, the commonalities that they have, but he's wanting to lead them to. There's more that you need to know, and I need you to I need. To, I want to help you to see the connection uh, between what you do know and what you now need to know. Um, right. And so then what happens is this sermon that spans the, the, the biggest chunk here of the chapter. Um, and it is kind of, before we went on started recording, uh, to me this is kind of a, a, a mashup of Stephen's sermon from Acts chapter 7 um, that's just kind of a tour through Old Testament history. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of a blend with um, Peter's sermon from Acts chapter 2. And and. Peter, of course, quotes some things from the Old Testament as well. And in the, the difference between those two sermons is that Peter actually got to fully, you know, explain Christ and, you know, and, and kind of offer an invitation, so to speak. Uh, Stephen didn't get to get all the way to that point entirely. Yeah. Um, and so Paul's going to kind of just follow in their footsteps. It's kind of a, a jam-up version of it. And this is maybe one of the more unheralded sermons in, in the book of Acts. Um, it's just masterful the way that he he weaves through all of this. Uh, we'll not we'll not dwell too long on on everything here, but we'll kind of hit some highlights. And you stop me at any point when there's things you want to point out about it. Yeah, I, I, the, it's we're seeing that the message is consistent, um, no yeah. matter who's speaking it. Right. Um, and I think that's why we're going to see a lot of similarities because it's the same message. Yeah. Uh, and I, that's what we should experience. You know, yes. when when we look at the scriptures, when we see what God has revealed. Um, Independent people can come up with the same conclusions mm-hmm. because it's logical. It's meant to be, uh, and so I, I think that we're we are laying the groundwork. It's important that we see this in Paul here because, in order to be able to trust him for the rest of Acts, we have to see that he's grounded in doing the same thing that everyone else had been doing. As yeah, well. and that ought to be the case today too. That you know, sometimes people say this almost like as if it's a a negative thing, but you'll hear people say, well, y'all down there in the Church of Christ, every one of them, y'all preach baptism. Well, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I hope yeah. there is some consistency about that across the board. Uh, and uh, there ought to be those, those you know, things, those anchor points that are, that are consistent all the way through. I mean, the differences that you are going to get from person to person and congregation to congregation is differences in, in personality and delivery and yeah. uh, those sorts of things. Uh, and, and there's differences in, in that amongst these guys. I, I, there's, you, can, you can tell a, a Paul sermon <laughs> w- when you read it. True. Uh, and uh, even if Luke or whoever the author is doesn't say Paul's the one talking, there's just things about the way that Paul speaks that you can tell that's him. Um, so let's just actually read through this a little bit and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it. Uh, verse 16, uh, motioning with his hand, he said this, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. I like the fact that he begins with, again, these are kind of endearing terms. Um, Men of Israel, your, your brethren, uh, you fear God. You just start with you bunch of dummies. Let me set you straight. <laughs> no, yeah. uh, I recognize that you all are God-fearing people. So here's what I got to say, verse 17: The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, He led them out of it. And for about forty years, He put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, He gave them their land as an inheritance. So there's a a quick summary of uh, what Genesis through Joshua already. Yeah. Uh, verse 20. All of this took about 450 years. 
And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Can I say right there in verse 20, when the, the 450 years? Um, you read in the Old Testament and this reference of this time period, there, there seems to be, uh, and people will point to this as being an inconsistency, because in the Old Testament, and I forget the passage right offhand, but it speaks of like 400 years. Yeah. And so there's lots of folks that are like, well, look at there, you got 400 years over here in this verse, and then Paul here in four, saying 450, and you can't even get Scripture to agree with itself. I, the, 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 here, here's, here's how I would just conclude. I wouldn't even get into that argument. Here's how I would conclude it with just one statement. Verse 20, Paul says, all this took about 450 years. Yeah. You know, Paul is not, you know, hold on, let me sit down. I'm going to do the math correctly for you and get this down to the exact day. Um, yeah. And I realize there's there's going to be folks that are going to point to those kinds of things to try to discredit Scripture. And we just need to be ready to, to you know, combat that, however we choose to do that. I don't know how militant some people may be about that. Others... When you just say what I've just said, well, Paul says about 450. Just like in the previous verse when he said, uh, or verse 18 when he said about 40 years. You know, he's kind of dealing in some generalities here. Uh, and, and the point is not even to give his audience here some precise year by year. I mean, he's talking to people who already know this. Yeah, yeah. And so he's going to kind of talk in broad general terms about 450 years. Yeah, just for clarity's sake on that, though. I mean, 400 years in Egypt, 40 years wandering in the wilderness, you know, maybe 10 or so years uh, actually conquest of, of Canaan. Yes. Uh, and so, I mean, you, you could get about there yes. if you really think about it. But, yeah, I, I think that, that some people are we're, we're too up in arms about things like that. That's um, picking at a nit. Yeah, yeah. We don't hold, you know, people, anybody like today to those standards of writing, you know. Um, if, if someone uses round terms, you know, it, it's easy. 450 years, that's kind of a round number. Yeah. Um, so If somebody asked me right now how old am I, um, I'm going to say 39. But the truth is, I'm just a couple months shy of 40. Right, yeah. I could say, I'm, well, I'm about 40. Yeah. <laughs> and it would or be you, accurate. You could say, I'm in my 30s. That's, that's and, right. And, and like, depending on how you say that. Any number of ways. You get uh, a much, much different, you know, outlook. Yeah. Um, so anyway, all right, so that gets us up through uh, the, the book of Joshua. Then he says there at the end of verse 20, it gave them judges till Samuel the prophet. So, hey, look, we're already, we've already covered half the Old Testament here. Verse 21, then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, and I just, that statement, I, I'm, I'm actually not aware that it actually just uses that language in the Old Testament when it talks about Saul that God removed him, yeah. but that is what God did. Uh, I realize that's kind of a sidebar, but um, I don't know. That's, that's powerful language there. God removed him, and I, and I think some of that negative talk about Saul is really just designed to emphasize the, the, the greatness of David. True. Actually, the whole you know, First Samuel, you know, all the terrible details of Saul for me are always. Well, they're just being told in sharp contrast to what a man after God's own heart that David was. Um, verse 22, When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. 
Before His coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Um, so there's kind of unspoken mention there of, of some important prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, in particular, what's said there in verse 23, that of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, would be brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Uh, that, of course, is a reference to uh, that important promise that God gives to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You know, there's... I always... When I'm talking about the Old Testament, there's you know four or five kind of anchor points that I think are just essential places that everybody needs to know and understand. Genesis 12, the promises that are given to Abraham. That promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God gives to David, that's another one of those. And Saul or Paul is uh, weaving that in here to, to again to get to Jesus. And that's going to be the, the, the main point of the sermon, but he's going to use Old Testament Scripture to point to Jesus and to show the fulfillment uh, of, of what had uh, been talked about before. He speaks here, spends a little bit more time talking about, about John the Baptist than uh, you know, Stephen or Peter had. Uh, but of course, John the Baptist was a huge figure in the eyes of, of the Jewish people. I mean, John, you, if you're putting a Mount Rushmore of great Jews... I mean, John the Baptist would be up there. He'd be right up there with Moses and Elijah. John the Baptist would be up there somewhere as well. Uh, so I'm going to tell you about John the Baptist. And this is what John said. John said, you know, it wasn't about him. It was about the one who was to come uh, after him. And that, of course, was, was Jesus. Um, thoughts through 25. You can make the, the whole story of the Old Testament pretty succinct when you were looking forward to Jesus. Yeah. I think... It, the, in light of Jesus, the Old Testament makes sense, and you can see how consistent it is because it's all pointing that direction. Yeah, um, it wasn't just a, a group of stories or just you know, here's this wrathful, vengeful God. No, it's it's here's the story of why we need Jesus mm -hmm. and how He came to be. And when we don't read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, it really is just a bunch of random stories, some of them kind of happy ending stories, and yeah. lots of others, you know, where, yeah, you get the, the vengeful, ugly God picture in your mind, and Ugh, I, don't, I don't want any of that. Yeah, um, yeah Jesus helps us make sense of, of, of all of it. Uh, verse 26, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. There's kind of a jab there uh, when he says that you know there's there's a lot of Jews who every single week, every single Saturday, they come together and they read these passages, and it just goes whew, right over their head. Yeah. You know, they don't even get it. Uh, and in fact, those are the very people who have blood on their hands. They're the ones who, who condemn Jesus. Um, and he does, and he, he specifies, you know, that this was the case of the, 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 the Jews in Jerusalem. Um, that, yeah, they're the ones that have kind of a, a, a more pointed guilt on their hands. Um, and he's wanting to show them how they can keep from having that guilt. Uh, verse 28, And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. So there's, once again, I've said this multiple times, uh, 
if you're listening to gospel preaching in the first century, you're going to hear about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And um, that's at the core of gospel preaching. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you know, there in those first few verses, uh, what is of first importance, the death, burial, and res resurrection of Jesus. Um, but God raised him from the dead, verse 31. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So here's Paul kind of following in that great um, example that, that we've noted with Peter, who just, it's just, it's scripture, scripture. I'm going to, this isn't just me talking. I'm, I'm just, I'm going to read to you what scripture says. I've given you kind of a, you know, a, a quick overview of, of, of our history, but let me tell you about what Scripture says specifically. Verse 34, I'm going to give you some more Scripture. And as for the fact that He was raised from the dead, uh, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore He says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, and can we just say a quick word about that expression there that's used to describe David? That's a great expression. That's, a, that's yeah. actually a, an expression in verse 36 that all of us should strive you know, to have etched on our tombstone. That here lies Jason Bridgman who served the purposes of God in his generation. Um, that's just, I don't know, there's, there's just so many layers to that. and It causes you to, to, to just think... Uh, very deeply about 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 what all that could entail. Um, it didn't say here lies David, king of Israel. Yeah, you know it's that's not what's important. His accolades or you know accomplishments or, or who he was. It was all about what God was doing through him. Yeah, serving His purpose. Yeah. So yeah, it, it definitely changes the focus. Yeah, and I, I like that. You know, sometimes uh been to different trainings for school or, or whatever and, and they'll say you know you, you begin with the end in mind think about what you want uh students to remember you by or uh, think about how uh you know what what's going to be your eulogy what's that going to look like mm -hmm. uh now what what do you have to do right now to make that happen yeah um you know for people to be able to say that about us we have to live our life like that yes um it's a daily thing and the purpose of God in, in, in my own generation, you know, the purpose for the, for the time in which I'm living in right now maybe would be very different if, if I was living in a completely different day and time and in a different part of the world. Um, but I just love that, like the idea that David was able to fulfill the role that God needed him to fulfill at that time and at that point in history. And I, I want that to be able to be uh, said of me when it's all said and done. Um, the point, though, is uh, David's dead, <laughs> and, uh, and and his body did see corruption. Verse 37, though, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And that's what makes his his offspring, this, this Jesus, so much different. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Hey, now that's... <laughs> That's kind of bringing things to a culminating, you know, that's a tough point, but it's a, a hard point that needs to be stated. Um, yeah. Here he's speaking to an audience of, 
you know, hopefully fine, upstanding Jews trying to observe the law of Moses as perfectly as they possibly could, and to then just kind of be stung with this, that even if you do everything that the law of Moses says to do, it's not going to fully free you and release you from the sins that you've committed. Um, it's only through the blood of Christ that that's going to be, to be possible. Uh, you think, man, Paul writes a lot about this in the book of Romans and how, yeah. just how inadequate the law of Moses was. The law could show you that you are a sinner, but it couldn't do anything to save you. Because, I mean, once you break the law, you broke the law. Yeah. You can't fix that. And so that's why we need Jesus to be the, the sacrificial lamb, to, yeah. to provide the sacrifice. Uh, you know, we, we talked uh, earlier about how, you know, sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we see the God of wrath. But think about how, how merciful and generous and kind God was to a lot of people. Uh, you know, on what basis was he able to do that? That doesn't make sense to us. Uh, if you really think about it, you know, why did God, you know, allow people to worship him after they had sinned? Um, and it's all because of Jesus. It's, again, God through was the lens forward of thinking. Yeah. 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 God was looking down the stream of time. Um, as you was talking, I was reminded of what, you know, what James, is it James that says, you know, he who keeps the whole law but fails in, in one point is guilty yeah. of all of it. And, um, <clears throat> So, so it's only through through Christ the the better offering, the better uh, sacrifice that makes it possible. So then he issues this warning, verse forty: Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, uh, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And I don't have, I didn't write down the the. Maybe you're Habakkuk one five. Okay, that's a quote from from the book of Habakkuk. Um, and that provides kind of the, 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 final, the final word to this sermon, at least what's recorded for us. Um, verse 42. So, so evidently, out. go ahead. Um, one thing here that some people will point at uh, is like, okay, we hear about forgiveness of sin in verse 38. Verse 39, we see belief. We don't see baptism. Yeah. Uh, and so you'll, you'll get, well, why didn't he say that? Why didn't he mention that? Um, if it's so important. You know, you think about what people are told when they ask what they need to do. Um, and the, Peter's version of this sermon in Acts 2, um, he does mention baptism. He didn't say believe. You know, but, well, we talked about that when we got there. You know, we said it's obvious they believe because they asked the question. They were the ones asking, yeah. what do we need to do? You don't have that here. Uh, and judging by the response of some of the people here in a second, uh, don't think that a lot of them did believe what he was saying. Right. So that is square one. You know, if if we don't believe, you have no leg to stand on. Um, I don't think that we need to unload everything on someone at the very beginning yeah. of what you need to do. Um, so I, I think that he was giving them a starting point. Yeah. Um, and, well, and the other thing, too, is there's even other places here in Acts where you know, Luke will talk about a person's response to the gospel, and he will not even spell out necessarily every time. And those people heard the word, and they believed it, and then they confessed the name of Christ, and then they repented of their sins, and then they were immersed into Christ. Uh, sometimes he'll just use one of those statements. Uh, you know, they, they, they turned to the Lord, or upon hearing they were baptized. Uh, or, or what have you, and he'll use that kind of as, as an all-encompassing term right. to describe 
uh, everything that those people needed to do. They were they were told everything that they needed to know at that time. Uh, and so and the other thing too is, I mean, I, I'm not even going to go out on a limb and say that, that Paul didn't say anything about baptism on this occasion. He very well might have. Right. Uh, or it may have just been kind of understood that, uh, yeah, well, that's, that, that is what those Christian folks do um, as kind of a culminating uh, point to, to respond to the gospel. Um, it, it does seem, though, that uh, the sermon does not conclude maybe in the same way that we conclude sermons with a formal invitation. Now, if anyone <laughs> would like to, please come to the front while we stand and sing. Yeah. Uh, instead, verse 42 says, okay, he got done talking, and then everybody, all right, get up and we go out. And as they went out, there were people who begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. Um, and so it seems like the, the custom of that time was... Um, you know, we're, we're, as we're leaving, we'll have our opportunity to you know, shake hands with the, the preacher at the door and make any additional comments. And what we have, have here is we have people who were eager for, for more. We want to know more about that. And so maybe even Paul, maybe he did kind of leave the sermon uh, kind of with a cliffhanger, so to speak, and maybe didn't spell everything out for them, right. wets their appetite for let's have further studies, let's have further discussions about this. I guess part of my... Part of what I would say about this is, well, hey, we don't have to wait till next week. <laughs> we can go talk about this right now, yeah. or or tomorrow, or whenever is convenient for you. Uh, maybe Paul saw that it was prudent to, you know, these people need to. We'll give it a week. Let give them plenty of time to digest this and mull this over. You know, what he's presenting to them is going to require some major changes in their thinking. Um, but obviously he has developed a great amount of intrigue uh, in these people's minds, uh, several of these people that they do want to know more and they want another opportunity. You don't have to answer every question all at once. Yeah. Uh, and that the way Jesus taught. He you didn't. Know? <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times he would say something that was just like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, and the people who really cared, they're the ones who came and asked. Yeah. Um, it's the idea of I often heard of put a pebble in your shoe. Jesus would put a pebble in your shoe to where it's like you know it aggravates you enough to where I got to do something about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and that's what Paul's done here. He's, he put, he's put he's put a big pebble in in some people's shoes. Um, verse forty three. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism they began to follow Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them urged them to continue in the grace of God. So. So obviously we got some folks who, yeah, hey, can you come back next week and we want to hear some more. But even amongst that group, it seems there's some people who, well, we, we don't want to wait till next week. Hey, let's just kind of just follow these guys around for a while and uh, see what other things that we can learn from them and uh, gain from them. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, you know, when he says urging them to continue in the grace of God. I would really like to know what that conversation was like and, yeah. and exactly what he was saying and, and what sort of things they were encouraging them in. Um, and we don't get that a whole lot. You know, we, there's so much that we don't see. Um, but I, I think it's just, no matter what, our message is about the grace of God. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, that's the only way we can have salvation. It's the only way we can come in contact with Him. Um, and so think that, that that's an appropriate thing to say. Yeah. Continue in that grace. And Barnabas is the one who immediately comes to mind as kind of being the the one to me that would kind of be 
foremost in that direction because there's a number of other places where we read about how you know, he, he continued, or urged them to continue to remain steadfast. And when you think about the encourager role that Barnabas, you know, perfected or close to perfect as, as anybody that we've got in the New Testament, he just seems like the guy who, all right, Paul's going to be the ones to kind of help people maybe to get their foot in the door, so to speak, and, and to become Christians. And now Barnabas is going to be that guy who's going to now slide in and I'm going to help these folks to develop and to continue on in, uh, in the initial steps that they've taken. That's just, again, that's that's the way I've kind of always pictured their, their tag team in my mind. Um, and we need people like that. We need people who, yeah, I may not be the guy who's going to be the one to... You know, present the the airtight you know sermon and the airtight case for New Testament Christianity. But I may be the person who, once that person does end up becoming a Christian, I'm going to be the one that's going to slide in there and help them to continue and to be uh, patient with them and work with them and uh, help help them to grow and be more faithful. Um, verse 44. So the next Sabbath comes, and almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, and that, let's just say something about that. Almost the whole city. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the you know population was in Antioch of a city at that time, but still, regard. I mean, even if you're talking about some little podunk town like Broadhead, Kentucky, I mean, yeah. that's 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 a lot um, to be in one place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't uh, think they had built their synagogue with that in mind. Yeah. Uh, so wherever they were, uh, everybody gathers to hear the word of the Lord, verse 45. But when the Jews, and, and, and I think right here when it says the Jews, hmm. it's a specific type of Jew. Right. These are the ones who are, who are adversarial, the purists that we've been talking about. When they saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. I would imagine so. Hey, why can't we get this kind of a turnout on a normal Sabbath day? Yeah. What's up with this? Yeah. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So once again, not only do we have just some people who are like, you know, passive unbelievers. Well, you know, that's not for us. But you know, whatever. No, we we are strongly opposed to what that guy is saying, and so we're going to. You know, we're going to contradict what he's saying. When it says reviling him, I almost kind of take that as there's, you know, maybe even some some personal uh, digs being made and trying, trying to tear down his character in the eyes of these people. Um, verse 46, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold... We are turning to the Gentiles. Let's just pause right there for a second. Um, that's a that's a jab to the heart. You know, very much. You have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Sheesh, that is. I don't know that I have. I don't know that I have enough courage to say that to an audience of people. Yeah. Um, but I guess if you're being guided by the Holy Spirit, well, you can say that sort of thing, and, and you can know when it's appropriate to say it. Uh, but it is true of what was taken, and that is what what happens, you know, when people are in uh, a state of of militant unbelief, and that is you're you're, you're judging yourself to be unworthy of eternal life. Um, 
And that's, you know, that that's interesting, um, because for Paul and Barnabas to be able to say that, uh, telling someone that they have judged themselves unworthy, um, that's clearly different than saying, I just think you're terrible. Yeah. You know, or, you know, I, I just think you're, you're awful. But, no, sometimes when we call out sin, we are not judging them. Yeah. The judgment has already happened. You know, it's, and it, it's a judgment of, of themselves. Yes. Um, you know, when people make statements like, well, only God can judge me. Instead of being a comforting thing that we just throw around and, and just to, to be like, yeah, you can't tell me what to do, that should be absolutely frightening. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just to say that. Um, because God does see and God does know. Um, and it's our actions that we're going to be responsible for. Yeah. I was thinking of Hebrews 11, verse 7, when it talks about Noah um, when he constructed the ark. By this, he condemned the world. That didn't mean that Noah had to actually go around and say, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die, and you're all going to go to hell. No, it just by his actions and by those people, their actions, by, you know, if they mocked Noah or laughed at him or you know, thought he was foolish for building that big old ark, yeah, you're 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 judging yourself. Yeah. You're 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 doing the work for. Me. I don't have to even say the first word about that. You've you've already done that, and that is a scary thought. Uh, that there, you know, th there will be people in hell, and there's a there's a painting done by I think it's Michelangelo, and it's it's a depiction of oh it's it's on the Sistine Chapel. There, there's a segment on the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Um, and it, it kind of depicts what's supposed to be the judgment scene. And there's all these angels, of course, flying around and getting people, and people are resistant. And, ah. But there's a segment on, on, on one of those uh, tableaus where there's a, and it's always struck me, there's this person in the midst of all the chaos going around, uh, on around him, all these angels taking people and, and you know, going to cast them into hell. There's this image of this one person who's just sitting and doing this. And they have this look on their face of just utter defeat. And in my mind, what I've always thought Michelangelo meant by that when he drew that was this was the person who they, they were self-condemned. They knew better. They, they, they had opportunity after opportunity. And in that moment of judgment, they realized, I've condemned myself. It's my fault. And who am I to even resist and fight against this now? I, I'm going to get exactly what I deserve. Uh, and I wonder if, if there will be some people like that on Judgment Day. You know, they come to this harsh reality that Paul and Barnabas are just saying rather forthrightly here in Acts 13. Yeah, and that's the worst possible time you could come to that realization. Exactly. Yeah. Way too late. I think, you know, sometimes we're afraid of, of rocking the boat and, and saying things to people about their sin or about, you know, what, what they're doing. And we just got to think, you know, what what if? What if I never say anything to them? And then yeah. they realize it. You know, what... <laughs> Am I going to be able to look at that? I don't yeah. know how that's going to work and everything. But, um, you know, the song, You Never Mentioned Him to Me. Yeah. That's, that's a fright. That's a terrifying song. Yeah. I don't want to sing that song. No. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, well, there's a lot to be said about that. Probably the, 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 one of the key things here in verse uh, 46 is, all right, the Word of God was spoken to you first, you Jews. But now, because you've thrust it aside, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
Uh, verse 47, and here's kind of confirmation for this. Uh, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This, is, this was the divine order of things. I think about Romans 1 verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God and the salvation for the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. And so God's, all right, we're going to bring it to the Jews first, Going to give you the first shot at it. There were, there were some who, who accepted that. Lots, though, who rejected it. Many of these folks here in Antioch of Pisidia speaking out, they're loudly rejecting it. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are making it clear, all right, we're, we're now going to turn to the Gentiles. We're going to, uh, we're going to do the, the actual uh, shaking off the dust of our feet. Actually, they're going to, they're going to shake the dust they off will. their feet before this chapter is over, but that's what's going to take place here. Yeah, and I, I think that maybe this shows us why every time they go to the synagogue first. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, not only was it religious-minded people, but it was people that should have listened. Yeah. Um, you know, they go to the Jews first because they already have that connection with yeah. the Lord. Yeah. Um, and so they should be the ones to listen. Already got a a, 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 a biblical foundation of, you know, again, it, Paul in, in really none of this was he giving them new information uh, right. as far as all the Old Testament stuff. Uh, it was stuff that they would have already been familiar with. So they should have, they should have known um, when he finally, you know, puts the last couple pieces to connect the dots in their mind, it should, oh, well, yeah, of course. Uh, but that's not the reaction that everybody gave. No, and, and to something that we said earlier, uh, you know, going to religious-minded people first, you know, that, that's a good place to start because you know, we, we have that common bond. But you see what happened here with, with Paul and Barnabas. The, those people who should have listened didn't. So we can't be surprised when the people who should, who appear religious, who seem like they're, you know, really wholeheartedly in it, um, if if they're confronted with the truth and they they don't listen, we can't think that we're doing something wrong and it's yeah. something that that we are are messing up with. Uh, you know, we need to double down and realize, okay, well then they have judged themselves. Uh, unworthy of eternal life. And, and we need to not just shut down and say, I'll never teach anyone again. No, you keep looking. You, you go and you find people who will listen. Yeah. I always, I go back and forth, you know, there's days where I'll have the thought that, you know, I'm studying with somebody who, who has lots of preconceived ideas because they do have a religious background. And there'll be moments where I'll think, man, I, I just wish this person had none of this. Yeah. I wish they were just a clean sheet of paper and we were working from square one. But then there are days where <laughs> you're working with somebody, you're staying with somebody who does have a, a basis and you're like, man, this is great because we can kind of start getting to the to the crux of the matter. Um, people are different uh, and, yeah. and, and you, again, you got to meet people where they are. Um, but it does seem, especially here for these Jews, their, their, uh, their prior understanding of things uh, really just lent themselves to uh, presuppositions that they just were not willing to, to change on. Yeah. And um, so, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, that is this idea that we're turning to the Gentiles, made a light for the Gentiles, when they heard this, they began rejoicing <laughs> and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Let's just stop right there. Um, verse 48, I don't know how that's, how's that rendered the last part of verse 48 in the New American Standard? Uh, about the same. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Alright, be real easy to read that verse and come away thinking, well, that 
kind of sounds like kind of sounds like what Calvinism teaches, doesn't it? <laughs> that kind of sounds like some predestination there. Here's some people that were already appointed by God to be saved, and so they they were. Um, I think the key here is just what's said there at the very end of the verse that those people believe that that was that's something that they chose to do. Uh, coupling that with verse forty six. You know, those people who were lost, was it because uh, they just weren't appointed that? Uh, was it God made the choice that they should not be saved? Uh, no, it says that they judged themselves. They thrust it aside, yeah. And so it's, it's a, it is a choice, and yeah. it's something that we do. Yeah. Um, when he said in verse 39, everyone who believes is freed, it, it's something that we have to do. Yeah. It, it's an action that we take, not uh, something that's forced on us. Right. And does the Bible teach predestination? I believe the Bible does teach predestination. Yeah. Not Calvinistic predestination, but I do believe that it teaches predestination in this sense right here, and that is God has decided. Who is it that's going to get eternal life? Well, it's people who believe and act upon that. That's exactly who it's going to be. That's who He has appointed. That's who He has decided uh, is going to be saved. It's people who believe and then act upon that belief. Um, the result there, verse 49, is the word of the Lord continues to spread throughout that region. Verse 50, but the Jews, they incited those devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of their district. So, you know, they go to all of the, it seems like all of kind of the, the top spots that they would know to, and it says women of high standing. I honestly don't know what all that w would include. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't either, but it, it's interesting how uh, in a book that a lot of people call sexist and you know, de demeaning of women mentions that the Jews went to the devout women of prominence. Yeah. Like that's how mine says it. And is people who had high positions, um, you know, that we do not see uh, a lot of the... the sexist behavior. Well, so they, they stir those folks up. They stir the persecution up against Paul and Barnabas. Run them out of town. Again, all right, we, we got some people that are creating problems for Christianity, but, but the gospel's not going to stop. It, it's going to continue to go forward. Uh, what Paul and Barnabas then do is the very thing that Jesus had told the apostles that they were going to need to do. And actually, from what I can tell, this is actually the only instance in the whole New Testament where it's it, it said that they do this. Verse 51. Yeah that they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Um, the shaking off of the dust was, uh, it was a symbolic gesture, but it would have been a gesture that the Jews would have been very familiar with. The Jews, even before the, 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 the Christian age, and Jesus co-ops this and kind of gives it a different meaning, the Jews would often do this whenever they were departing from a Gentile territory. So let's imagine here's some Jews having to pass through you know, uh, like, like a region like Samaria, and they thought so terribly of those people. Well, before we leave town, we're going to shake off our dust, let them know we don't want none of their nasty, dirty dirt going with us where <laughs> we're going. Uh, leave it there. Uh, and it, it kind of would, would, would speak as a sign of, 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 of that's, it's all on you now. Uh, and that's kind of the, the meaning that Jesus uh, meant when he commissioned the apostles and told them that that's what I. You know, that's what you're going to do when you're not received in a place. Uh, it's to let them know. It's kind of the, you know, like with Pilate, the, the washing of the hands. Hey, our hands are clean here. In this sense, our feet are clean here. Um, it's on you now. You know, we did everything that we could. Uh, we presented what needed to be presented. And 
you judge yourselves unworthy, you'll have to answer for that now. How beautiful are the feet of uh, those who bring the good news. And, and so, I mean, it's, they're keeping their feet, feet beautiful. Yes. You know, if the people aren't listening, and so I'm, I'm not going to let that, uh, you know, taint my feet. Uh, and, and so, I mean, the same thing with us. Um, we get so upset when we can't convince someone to become a Christian. What if we can convince someone to become a Christian? That should scare us. Yeah. Because it's like I don't want to do that. Because the powers of the gospel. It's not in what I say and how I present it. Um, you know, the, the power, like we said, saw before in the chapter. It's it's the message. Um, you know, not not me. I was asked, and uh, and I dealt with this on in in, in our Bible study in Mark recently, and uh, kind of just threw out my thoughts. But you can you can throw your two cents on on this. I was asked, should we do this? You know, so all right, so let's say we go canvas the neighborhood and we're knocking on doors and asking if we can have a Bible study and someone, you know, just slams the door in our face. Should we shake off the dust of our feet uh, as we're leaving? And my response was, uh, I'm I'm not compelled that that was really a command given for for all time. Uh, I, I think if we did do that, it wouldn't mean anything to to people today, you know. Again, there's a, there's a cultural aspect to that that people at that time understood. If we did that right now to somebody, they would just be like, "So what? Whatever." <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah. But just the 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 concept is there, and that is uh, that we're not going to keep trying to beat a dead horse to death. Yeah. Um, you know. I'm reminded of of Jesus in the encounter when when he healed the the Gerasene demoniac, mm-hmm. and the people there uh, they were frightened by what took place there, and that's the occasion where he sends the demons into the pigs, and it frightens everybody in town. And they then ask him to leave, and the very next verse says, "And Jesus got in the boat and he left. He did not beg them. Now, please, 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 let me explain to you what this means, or let me let me have an opportunity to, to teach you a little bit more." Nope, you don't want it. I'm gonna go, and I think we need to respect people's wishes uh, about that. And if you so choose to to self-condemn, that's on you. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't care about you. It doesn't mean I'm not going to pray for you or do whatever else I can do that you will allow me to do. But beyond that, uh, I'm not going to try to force something on you that you that you obviously don't want. Yeah, amen. And I, I think that's. That's the point. That's the whole point of it. You know, you think of why Jesus told them to do that in Luke 9. um, And you think about why he told them to do everything else he told them to do there, too. Don't take any money with you. Uh, You know, only the clothes on your back. You need to pack light. Um, So does that mean any time we go anywhere? Right. Do do we need to not take any money with us? Right. Uh, You know, only what you're wearing. and And later on, he told them to take a sword. Right, yeah, and that's you know, Luke twenty two. That's yeah. he he says now this time take your money with you, take yeah. you know because you're you're going to need stuff, and so he I don't think that was a command that was meant to be forever. Yeah, uh, you know he even changed some of that of what they were doing. Now we see the apostles doing that here. Um, so well, is that an, an apostolic example of things? Um, I think, like you were saying, they would see that differently in their culture than yeah. we would today. Most people today would be like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, I knew you were crazy. If we were doing evangelism in maybe a, a Middle Eastern land, 
Yeah. It might be appropriate because they maybe would get it. It's the same thing with like the, the, the holy kiss. Yeah. If yeah. we do the holy kiss here in America, eh, that's not going to have the same connotation that it would if you were in like a Middle Eastern land and yeah. you when you greeted someone, you met it with a kiss. Uh, it's just, it's, 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 it, it's a different thing now. For us here, it'd be a handshake or a... Or a you know, a side hug. <laughs> that, that's the holy the, side hug. The holy that's side it. hug. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the principle though is is what I think is is the important thing, and that is you know we're not going to try to cram something down somebody's throat when when they are resistant to it, or when it just reaches a point where it just is clear and, and they're just not interested. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I think there's a lot of times when we understand something, you know. Mentally, more so when we do something physical, um, and and so it, it was a good way to tell the people, okay, you're not listening. I, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to go somewhere else. Who who will listen? Mm-hmm. And it helps you too to let go of that. Yeah. Be like, you know, I'm, I'm leaving that behind me. I'm not going to be concerned. And that's why the last verse there, I, I think it says that they were able to still be filled with joy. You know, yeah. uh, it's not like they were joyful over the fact that people had rejected. Uh, the gospel or that they had been persecuted. No, they were joyful because they did their job. They, they yeah. did what they were supposed to do as Christians, and that's where we're going to be able to find our joy. It's not in the result. No, our joy comes from knowing that we did the will of God. Uh, we sowed seed. We uh, set the right example. We, we, we conducted ourselves as we should as God's children, and that's where, that's where our joy is going to be found in. Amen. You know, I, I've heard several times God wants us to be holy, not happy. Yeah. Um, if we find enjoyment, though, you know, why not have both? You know, if we find yeah. enjoyment in the things that uh, the Lord is concerned with and care about, you know, even though there's persecution, we can still be happy yeah. and, and experience joy because our joy is focused on the Lord and not on us. Yeah. Well, that's a that's, this is a jam-packed uh, chapter, and I don't know if it's just because of the length of the chapter or because we were just out of practice for a couple <laughs> weeks in uh, recording a session, but yeah. we're setting records, I will tell you, oh, okay. on, on my end over here as far as watching the clock. So, uh, you know, we are we are mastering the long-form podcast uh, on our end. So, uh, final thoughts on Chapter 13 before we put a bow on it. Well, for one, for those of you who have made it through this far, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you for being patient. Um, I hope that this has been beneficial. Um, I, there, there's a lot here, and it, it's a lot to process. But because of, of the, I mean, we've said before about bringing the message to the Gentiles. That's why we, most people listening to this right now, we should find a lot of joy in this. And in verse 48, the, the Gentiles were rejoicing and glorifying God because of this. Uh, I think we need to be more mindful and grateful to the Lord for Him allowing us to come into that mm-hmm. uh, relationship with Him. It wasn't. It's not just a, you know, a, a birthright of people, but we are all adopted into the family of God. Yeah. Because of that, so um, that that's the biggest thing that stands out to me. Uh, I, I just hope that we'll can continue looking at the message, continue studying, and and we'll, we'll keep diving in and uh, have greater comfort in the Lord. Well, that's just the first leg of the first missionary journey. We'll look at the next leg of it uh, next week when we look at chapter 14. But until then, thank you so much for listening and uh, keep reading your Bible.